You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Welcome to week eight. Today's teaching is on Exodus 31, 1 through 32, 35. Thanks for joining us. Okay, good morning, ladies. This is week eight. We are on a roll going through it, right? And no snow days yet, so we're hanging in there. So the last couple weeks, we focused on details about the tabernacle and about the priestly garments. So I want to start with a recap of the storyline so that we can remind ourselves of the flow of events. This is the story of a special relationship being cemented between God and the Israelites, a covenant. In chapter 19, God offered the Israelites a covenant. They agreed and God began dictating the principles that would govern that covenant relationship. So when God thundered the Ten Commandments directly to the people, they were so shaken that they asked Moses to be an intermediary. He would go get the rest of the commandments and bring them back. So he did that. He went up on the mountain to get a fuller version of the law, the the book of the covenant. And he brought that down to the people. They promised two separate times that they would obey it, They held a solemn ceremony, a blood sacrifice to ratify the covenant. Seventy elders went partway up the mountain with Moses and Aaron to eat a covenant meal in the visible presence of God. After that, God called Moses up to the cloud on the top of the mountain. And while Moses was there receiving instructions for the tabernacle and the priesthood that would facilitate this new close relationship with God, The people got tired of waiting and asked Aaron to make them gods to go before them. It's hard for us to grasp how utterly horrible that behavior was. God often spoke of his relationship to the Israelites as one of marriage. Israel was his bride and his wife. So put this in modern terms. Imagine a fancy high-class wedding followed by a reception at an upscale restaurant. When the couple arrives later at their honeymoon resort, the groom seats his bride in the lobby and goes to check in. But there's a problem with his reservation, and he has to wait for the manager to come sort it out. Meanwhile, the bride doesn't know what's going on, and she gets tired of waiting. So she wanders into the bar, picks up another guy, and goes home with him. (laughs) That's unthinkable, right? But in essence, that's just what the Israelites did to God. Our biblical version of that story begins this week in Exodus 31. God gives Moses two last sets of instructions before he sends Moses down to deal with the unfaithful Israelites. First, God calls out two men by name to be in charge of constructing the tabernacle and the priestly garments. Bezalel, whose name means under the shadow or protection of God, and Aholiab, whose name means father's tent. Their parents didn't know what their adult occupations would be when they named their sons, but God's been working all along. Bezalel is the grandson of Hur, probably the same Hur who held up Moses' arm in the battle against the Amalekites. And along with these two men is a whole company of gifted craftsmen who will work under them to complete the task. They were spiritually empowered artisans. Did you ever hear of a spiritual gift of creating beauty? It was a special feeling of God's Holy Spirit to give them ability and creativity. 
What an honor and a responsibility being commissioned to make the most precious objects on earth, the place where the sovereign almighty God would dwell. The task was enormous, but the gifting and ability from God would be equal to the commission. The tabernacle, even though it was incredibly special, was limited in scope because it had to be portable, carried by men. Gold is pretty heavy, right? Years later, when Solomon built a temple for God, the splendor was almost indescribable. God wanted his earthly dwelling place to reflect his character, his glory, and his splendor. Under the new covenant, there's no earthly tabernacle or temple as a building. But the Apostle Paul said that our bodies are now temples of God. We usually talk about that in terms of needing to care for our bodies as God's temple, right? But did you ever think that as temples, we're still expected to reflect the glory and splendor of God? I don't think that means you can go home and ask your husbands for lots of gold and diamond jewelry. That's not... Do not let your clothes adorning be external. This is um, 1 Peter 3, 3 to 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Imperishable beauty and very precious to God. We can adorn ourselves with things that are just as glorious and precious as the gold and precious gems in the tabernacle in the temple. And if that seems like a big task, we know that just as God gifted Bezalel and Aholiab, he will gift us with all that we need. You looked up 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We too have a magnificent commission and a magnificent equipping. So how are we going to receive that? When we first came back from Thailand, David was employed in a metalworking shop run by two brothers. They did routine metalwork as well as fancy custom orders. One day a man called in to commission a gorgeous custom copper hood for a kitchen range. He told the brother who answered the phone that this was for Martha Stewart's kitchen. The brother wrote the main down and made no comment. This was before Martha Stewart became famous for her insider trading. So the caller repeated the name. Yeah, the the caller repeated the name again, expecting some kind of response. And the brother just said, "Yeah, I got that." When the order was complete and he hung up the phone, he turned to his brother and to my husband and said, "The guy seemed to think I know Martha Stewart. Do you know her?" And they all agreed that nobody knew her. Um, <laughs> but all three men went home and asked their wives about it. And all three wives had the same response. You got an order for Martha Stewart's kitchen? You could use that to advertise. Wow. What was the difference? The men thought it was just business as usual. But we women thought that this was a great honor to be commissioned to work on that kitchen. So what if we started every day rejoicing in the great honor of being called by name and gifted to represent our glorious God? The next section of instructions repeats the Sabbath commandment. Twice here, God says that the Sabbath is a sign. 
First, it is a sign that the Lord sanctifies them. Sanctify means to make something holy or specially set apart. To profane something is to do just the opposite, to take something holy or special and treat it as common. The Israelites can't sanctify themselves. It's something they receive from God as they rest from their own work and come to him. God also says that the Sabbath is a sign that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. On the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. So how can God be refreshed if he never gets tired? I think it means that he delighted in what he had done. So the Sabbath is not merely for resting, but for delighting in God and in his work. Isaiah described the Sabbath this way in Isaiah 58, 13 to 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Sabbath is a day to turn away from purely human desires and pursuits and to focus on and delight in God. Now, Christians differ on how this carries over into the New Covenant. Three of the Gospels tell us that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who created, rested on the seventh day, and set it apart as holy. And his salvation is described as our Sabbath rest in the book of Hebrews. Paul tells us that the early church worshipped on Sunday rather than on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, because Sunday was the Lord's day, the day of his resurrection. So most believers now who observe a Sabbath do that on Sunday. Whether or not you see Sabbath keeping as a command for today, it's a good principle to observe. If we don't set aside a regular time to delight and refresh and refocus on the Lord, we tend to drift away from God. A few weeks ago, Lindsay described the Sabbath as a reset. We really like that term. It came from a conversation with Alex Swan about the Sabbath. He works with technical equipment, and he sometimes has to hit reset to get rid of accumulated clutter or error and get back to a good starting point. Who among us doesn't need that reset on a regular basis? So God finishes his instructions to Moses by handing him the two tablets of the testimony written by the finger of God on stone. Many commentators believe that these were two duplicate tablets, not one script that carried over and was two tablets long. When a covenant was ratified, each party received a copy. So there should be two copies. Moses would have had both the Israelites' copy and the copy belonging to God. Meanwhile, back at the camp, things are going to pieces, right? The Israelites get tired of waiting for Moses. They have no idea where this Moses has gone. That's a really derogatory way to speak about their leader. Presumably, the cloud of glory is still sitting on the top of the mountain, and there has been manna on the ground for them every morning of the days that they waited, but somehow they think they've been abandoned. They ask Aaron to make them gods to go before them. Not long ago, God's voice thundered from the heavens, forbidding them to make images so earth-shaking they couldn't bear to listen anymore. And then they agreed to obey the Book of the Covenant, 
but now they're ready to set all that aside in blatant disobedience. The word translated gods in this passage is Elohim, which technically is a plural noun, but it's often used to describe Jehovah God. So it's a question of whether you might translate it as singular or plural in the English. It's not clear if they're asking for a God other than Jehovah or if they just want an image of the unseen Jehovah. I suspect there were some of both. But they know that either one is strictly forbidden. And Aaron goes along with it. He tells them to bring earrings to make the image. At that same time, Moses is on the mountaintop receiving instructions to ordain Aaron as the holy high priest to God. Aaron fashions an image with a graving tool. Most English translations call it a golden calf. That's a bit misleading. The actual Hebrew word denotes a young bull in his prime. You can, yeah. This is Apis, that's an Egyptian bull god, but uh, many ancient Near Eastern religions had bulls used in worship. Did they want a god who was close to them that they could see instead of an unseen, unapproachable god at the top of the mountain? Even when the tabernacle was built, the holy place and the most holy place would be off limits to most of the people. Were they trying to bring God down to their level? Psalm 106, 19 to 21, describes a desecration like this. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. God's tabernacle was designed to resemble a royal palace. And they exchanged that for a cow. To add insult to injury, they used the very gold plundered from the Egyptians that was meant to be used for the tabernacle and its furnishings. They took that that God had provided and used it for evil. Of course, we would probably never be tempted to worship before a graven image, right? But how often do we try to bring God down to our level, to reduce him to a being that we can understand, perhaps even manipulate or use for our own purposes? We don't want to obey unless we can understand God. We create new theologies that suit our sensibilities and that fit our culture rather than responding to God in humble obedience. So back on the mountaintop, God tells Moses what's going on. God calls the Israelites Moses people whom Moses brought out of Egypt. And in response, Moses calls the Israelites God's people whom God brought out of Egypt. God says the Israelites are stiff-necked people and tells Moses to stand aside so that he can consume them and start all over making a great nation from Moses. That sounds like a tempting offer, doesn't it? Get rid of all those frustrating Israelites and start over again in charge of your own family. But Moses isn't buying it. The first reason in verse 12 that he gives is... Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. He's concerned about God's testimony to the watching nations, his reputation. The Egyptians and others might question God's love and his power if he destroyed his own people. 
Is following God so difficult or so unappealing that he can't keep his own people in line? Does God really care about the people or are they just a bunch of expendable slaves? Moses desires to see the glory and character of God elevated, not diminished. And he appeals on that basis. Notice he doesn't say that these people don't deserve it. <laughs> the second reason is in verse 13, an appeal to God's faithfulness. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Starting over with Moses would only partially fulfill God's promises. Moses wants to see the fullness of God's work and his faithfulness to all his people. God responds in verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. That doesn't mean that God has forgiven the Israelites or that he won't punish them. It just means that he will not destroy them totally as he threatened. What does it mean that God relented when Moses interceded? Can we really change God's mind? What if Moses had agreed to God's original proposal instead of interceding for the Israelites? Psalm 106.23 puts it this way. Therefore he said he would destroy them. This is God. Had not Moses his chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses stood in the breach between God and his people and interceded for them. Does that remind you of how Abraham interceded with God when God said he planned to destroy Sodom? After a series of exchanges, God finally agreed that he would not destroy Sodom if he found even ten righteous men there. Sadly, there weren't ten righteous men, were there? Long after Moses, when God's nation was again sinning terribly, God said this through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 22:30, And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach. There's that stand in the breach again before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Here God was actively seeking for an intercessor, someone to stand in the breach, but found none. I'm not sure we can explain this adequately, but a few things are clear. God chooses to work through the prayers of his people. He commands us to pray and desires us to pray, and he acts in response to prayer. That doesn't mean that all my prayers will be answered exactly the way I pray them. But it does mean that prayer is very powerful. James 4, 2-3 gives us a few guidelines for our prayers. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. At one extreme is not asking God in prayer for anything and so not receiving what we might have had. At the other extreme is asking for things with wrong motives, and God doesn't comply. Remember how Moses prayed? His intercession was based on the desire to see God glorified, to see God's character vindicated, to see God's purposes fulfilled. His prayers reflected his close relationship to God. God loves to respond to prayers like that. We talked earlier about how we are now temples of God, we also know that under the new covenant, we are all priests before God. 
we usually focus on the fact that as priests, we don't need any intermediary. We can go directly to God. But one function of a priest is to represent other people to God. And that priestly role of prayer intercessor is one that God wants us to exercise today. So Moses then starts down the mountain. Apparently Joshua has been waiting for him part way up. The noise from the people could be heard all the way up on the mountain, but it wasn't clear what was happening. As they get close enough to see, Moses burns with anger and throws the tablets on the ground, breaking them. Just as the people had broken the covenant, so the tablets of the covenant were also shattered. At the end of his life, Moses gave a farewell address to the Israelites. That address forms the book of Deuteronomy. And in it, he recounts earlier events from a personal viewpoint. Deuteronomy 9, 17 to 21 adds some details not mentioned in Exodus. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. Do you see the intensity of Moses' heart there? The typical way to destroy a cult object was first to burn it, then to grind it up, and then to scatter the bits. So the, the calf image may have been gold formed around a wooden scaffolding, and that would burn. After grinding it, Moses scattered the bits by polluting the Israelites' drinking water with them. By the time the, the particles passed through the Israelites' intestinal tracts and were excreted, they would be totally defiled, never used for anything again. Aaron's response to Moses in verses 22 to 24 is totally unbecoming of a leader. Aaron not only refuses to take responsibility for his own actions, he outright lies and says that a miracle has happened. It was actually God's doing. He tries to blame it on God. He just threw in gold and out came an image. That's a total lie. Most of us have trouble with the next event. Moses calls for those on the Lord's side to come to him, and the Levites gather around him. They are, of course, his tribe, loyal to him, but they also have genuine zeal for the Lord. Then Moses, in God's name, commands them to kid, kill fellow Israelites, even members of their families. Okay, that's hard for us. But we see elsewhere in the law that the sentence for idolatry is death. So the Levites are carrying out God's lawful sentence. The Hebrew description of going to and fro from gate to gate is the idea of a systematic search, identifying those who were determined not to follow God and executing them individually, not just a random mass slaughter. And because of their faithfulness to God, the Levites are promised a blessing. The verses you read in Numbers 3 describe how the Levites were to guard the tabernacle and the priesthood. 
it's fitting that they would avenge the Lord's honor after this debacle. In verse 31, Moses again goes before God to plead for the people. He actually says that if God will not forgive the Israelites, he wants to be blotted out of God's book too. He is totally identified with these people that he's leading. The Apostle Paul made a similar comment in Romans 9, 1-3 about the Jewish people rejecting Christ. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Each of these great leaders had a passionate desire for his people, willing to lay his life on the line. But even their willingness to sacrifice their lives would not atone for their people. God does not let one person atone for another. The only one who can make atonement for another person is Jesus. Jesus said in John 10 that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Other leaders may have given their lives for their people or been willing to do that, but only the sacrificial death of Jesus is an atonement for his people. And God is still not finished with the Israelites. He sends a plague on the people because of their disobedience. Do you remember our very first lesson this winter, Exodus 15, where God promised that if the people would obey him, he would give them none of the diseases that he had put on the Egyptians? This is just a brief time later, and the reverse is happening. The people disobey hugely, and they're suffering from a plague as the result. So we're going to stop there and leave the Israelites in their mess, covenant broken, tragedy in the camp. We're so used to being forgiven by God that we tend to minimize how horrible sin is, what a brazen, unspeakable outrage it is to God's holiness. This chapter vividly shows the atrocity of sin, even of our sin, in God's eyes. Instead of wondering how God can punish like that, we should probably be asking how a perfect, holy God can ever have a close relationship with sinners like us. So we should be amazed at the riches and depth of God's grace and mercy poured out on us. So now you can dig into your homework for next week and see how a faithful, loving, holy God continues to deal with messy human sinners. So I want to close in prayer. Lord, we are amazed at the grace and mercy you have extended to us. Each of us deserve death. But you have reached down, loved us, called us, sacrificed for us, made atonement for us. And we tend to take it for granted. We think we deserve good things. So I pray that this week as we study, we would realize how indebted we are to your grace and mercy, that we would glorify you and not ourselves, that we would commit to obeying you, whether we understand you fully or not, knowing that you are the sovereign Lord who has redeemed us and that we owe you everything. And I pray for us now as we go our separate ways. Guide us, bless us, enlighten our eyes as we continue to study that we would know you better, serve you better, walk more closely with you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.